If you would, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Verse number 3 will be sort of a jumping off point for us. Um, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. We've been looking at the matter of vices, specifically the vices of sloth and vainglory. And as I see it in studying this matter, there's a double problem. The first is that vice or vices have been redefined. They've been dismissed, trivialized or psychologized um, so that now um, smoking might be considered a vice. And so, and if that's what you call a vice, then in many ways you have redefined, you have trivialized something that the early church saw as profoundly important. I think what is most important about what has happened in today's world is that moral components have been completely removed from any discussion of vices. A vice is a habit or character trait. It's not something that we are born with, um, but it is, in fact, like virtue, something that we cultivate These are moral qualities, in one case immoral or amoral, but with virtues, moral qualities. The moral project, as one author puts it, for the Christian is to die to the old self and rise to new life in Christ. This dying and rising is a rhythm of a life of discipleship, a life devoted to becoming more and more like Christ. But if, in fact, you say vices are just something quite trivial, then, then it's something that can be ignored. The second problem, as I see it, is that what I'm calling vices, and this isn't with me, original with me, others have done so, I think in today's world are seen merely as natural and normal. The two vices that we've been studying, or that we've studied, sloth and vainglory, are seen as simply, that's the way people are today. Um, Having been emptied of any moral quality or component, it's simply seen as, that's just the way people are. And the call to repentance, I think, falls on deaf ears, perhaps even our own ears. What we need to do in part is to recover a sense of vice. We've seen we often focus on sins, particular sins, rather than vices or attitudes. Where sins are individual acts or thoughts, vices are patterns. As I said when we began this series, sins are like photographs, snapshots. It's a single moment in time. Vices are like movies. They are extended. They are an ongoing scene. Some may complain, if you thought about it, or be unhappy that vice or vices not found in Scripture, certainly not the words. But there is the attitude or the mindset that we find in Scripture. They talk about this. In fact, if you look, we're here in Philippians 2, if you look in verse number 5, Paul says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. By the way, uh, the ESV has have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, which ties in with what we've seen about the vices. We tend to see them as individual. Um, And even when we read what Paul says, have the mind of Christ, we think I 
Damon Woods must have the mind of Christ. And that is true. But he is speaking of the congregation, that we as the people of God are to do this. The vices are communal and the virtues are to be communal as well. And since they are, then we can fight these things together. The second thing I think we need to do is to see vices for what they really are. They're also known as the deadly sins. Vices are attitudes and patterns which pull us away from the creator. They are, simply put, attitudes of death. To dismiss them, to trivialize them, to see them merely as a matter of psychology is to invite disaster and to fail to see the need to repent and to renew our minds. As we saw when we began our study of the vice of sloth, sloth becomes a sin not merely because it makes us lazy, but because of the lack of love that lies behind the laziness. It isn't just that someone's lazy and you say, oh, you're slothful. It is that you are lazy because there is a lack of love. Those who want to sort of push the hard working ethic, the diligence, point to the book of Proverbs, for example. Go to the ant, you sluggard, consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. And then in Second Thessalonians, I'm sorry, First Thessalonians, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. I think these verses we are familiar with, and we say, yes, sloth is wrong, hard work is right, as though that were the answer to sloth. The reality is, if you go back a few verses, when Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, he says, now about brotherly love, we, need not, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. And then he talks about working with your hands. So the work ethic is undergirded. The foundation is that of loving one another. Sloth is not primarily a feeling. It is, in fact, an entrenched resistance against what God wants us to do. In a real sense, if there is no love, we do not want to be like Christ. We don't want to be like Jesus. We don't want his presence in our lives. We want to call the shots ourselves. And when God says that we are to be imitators of Christ, something we would rather pass on. Sloth is, as we saw, the old sinful self resisting transformation into the new self in Jesus Christ. If we are slothful, then we have chosen to reject a relationship with God and we've chosen to find something else that will give us meaning. We try to be content with something else other than the Lord Jesus. In the matter of vainglory, which we began a couple of Sundays ago, we might be tempted to simply see it as the way people are today. We might imagine that the place to begin when talking about this is in the realm of pop culture, where a celebrity is somebody who's well-known for being well-known. But if we say that is what the vice of vainglory is, then basically we could argue, I'm not guilty of this because I don't want to be a celebrity. I'm not a celebrity, so this vice does not touch me. But vainglory casts a wide net, as we saw. It is a vice that plagues Christians and the Christian community at large. 
And the reason that we should care about this vice in particular is that it keeps us from drawing closer to God and to other people in love. It has been suggested, and I agree, that the place to begin in looking at the vice of vainglory is to look at the matter of glory. Because if glory is good and excellent, then vainglory has to be seen in an entirely different light. It's not just about wanting to be famous or being a celebrity or having a big head or whatever. If glory is something, vainglory would be the opposite. I think it gives us an entirely different way of looking at it. The definition for glory taken from Aquinas is that it is goodness that is displayed. The description means that people notice something good and recognize its attractiveness and its desirability, and so they express approval and praise. They give it glory. The conversation about glory in the Christian tradition begins with a display of all that is, in fact, glorious. The goodness of creation, for example. And I would say, in this regard, there is, I want to be careful here, there is no moral component as such. The glory of creation is something that God has done, and we don't say, well, this is moral goodness. We simply say, this is goodness this that has been displayed, and therefore we glory in it. And then the conversation sort of narrowed down to human goodness. Again, not a moral component. So let's say someone paints a beautiful picture. These pictures we have here, there, aren't, there isn't a moral component as such. This is someone who is gifted, who has used this gift, and has produced something of great beauty. And we would say, of glory. But then finally, it focuses on the moral component, moral goodness. When we think of God's goodness... I think in some ways we see it in all three. We should in fact see it in creation and we see it in what he has done in our lives, the beauty of things. But finally and supremely we see it in his son and his perfection. One last thing before we move on. We saw that glory can be good when glory is sought for God's sake and it is directed toward God. It becomes vainglory when it is sought exclusively as our own and there is no reference to God. So let's move on and talk more about the vice of vainglory. Rebecca DeYoung, in her book Vainglory, the Forgotten Vice, which I must tell you is both enlightening and has been invaluable to me, refers to vainglory as the AAA vice, an acronym for Attention, Affirmation, Applause or acknowledgement, approval, adulation. I think besides describing the vice, and we'll get into it in a bit, this helps us analyze the moral features of vainglory. Why, what are we getting glory for? Is it something truly good? Uh, why are we attached to it? Because it's all about us. We desire to be the center of attention. And by whom are we seeking to be recognized? The audience, in fact, does matter. Vainglory comes from two words. The glory part we know, or at least think we do. The vain we may have forgotten. It is that which is empty by nature. If good things are worthy of glory, then vain things, empty things, lack goodness. Or they don't deserve the glory they get. So glory can be sought for vain and empty reasons. Vainglory. Or glory can be sought in vain for a trivial or selfish or morally corrupt purpose. 
this may be off topic a bit, but as I was preparing this, I was reminded um, of a part uh, on the Ten Commandments. Um, Dick Kais has has spoken about this. Uh, The commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. We tend to think of that in terms of using God's name in a profane way. I would suggest that it points to using God's name in an empty way. Dick Kais of Labrie in Massachusetts has said he believed that this commandment was broken more in churches on Sunday morning than it was in any bar or tavern. We might imagine the people who are drinking or swearing and saying things they shouldn't say. But if, in fact, we use God's name in a vain or empty way, then we are guilty of breaking the commandment. We need to distinguish between the different forms of vainglory. The object, the thing that we're seeking, and then the motive behind what we're seeking. Or to put it another way, what we glory in and why we glory in it. Aquinas spoke of vain objects and then vain objectives. So, we have to ask ourselves, what are we seeking or getting recognition or affirmation for? We may think in terms of faking goodness, particularly here at church, because remember, vainglory is a vice that afflicts God's people. The most extreme form of seeking glory vainly is faking goodness. That is, we pretend to be something that we are not. And yet, in a real way, this is almost socially acceptable. People know that when you go to church, you behave better than when you're not at church. And so, again, um, we'd say, well, that's just the way people are. You know, they're, they're churchy when they're at church and they're not at church, then they're different people altogether. But what about having goodness that isn't really worth having? The first one may be socially acceptable. This, I think, is really just quite shallow. Uh, someone who is good at doing something, it's like, so what? There is no moral goodness about it. If somebody is able to bounce pennies off the floor into a cup and do it consistently, great. So you're the world champion of bouncing pennies off the floor. Um, and that, I think we would say, yeah, that, that's, that's vainglory, and I certainly would not be guilty of that. There's something else, and de Young refers to this as notorious vainglorious. This is her phrase. And this is where someone wins attention for doing something that isn't right, that isn't good. Perhaps it's something that is evil, and yet it inspires awe and attention in a relevant audience. There's a certain shock value, the rebel, the nonconformist. What I find interesting is that this is the route person, a person takes for notorious vainglories. In some ways, they have to keep upping the ante. That if they shock people at this level, after a while, the shock sort of wears off. And so they've got to do more. And they've got to do more. And I'm reminded of a celebrity whose name I will not mention, but you probably know who this is, who has announced that in the next concert, they will perform in the nude. And at first, everyone's like, oh, you know, just sort of, you know, what's going on? And then after a while, that sort of faded. So the announcement came out because apparently that wasn't enough shock value that not only would this person perform in the nude, but everybody in the audience would be required to be nude as well. 
notorious, vainglorious, trying to get glory, not really having done anything of worthwhile. But what about objectives? We've looked at objects, but what about objectives? I think glorying in vain things is easy for us to detect, detect and sort of point out, like, yeah, that's, that's vain glory. They concern the false, the superficial, the shallow, the suspicious claim to glory. The hymn that we sang earlier today, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. But now we face a more difficult task. Here we are dealing with truly glory-worthy good. In the cases of vainglory, we generally do have something good. Not, not faking it. Something genuinely good. Those that are genuinely worthy of applause. Not fluff. Not shallow. But our attachment to the glory that we receive for our goodness that becomes the problem. That is what leads us morally astray. So in the first one, we could say, yes, that's easy to point out. This person's just in it to become famous. They're not really doing anything of value. They're faking whatever goodness they have. They are like the Pharisees who announce whatever they're giving to charity. They want everyone to know, look what a good person I am. That, I think, you know, we don't even need to turn on the radar for that to see that. But what about when we are genuinely doing something that is right, that is good? But the motives behind it are less than what they should be. Here we are to look at ultimate motives, which probably lies behind all forms of vainglory. And here as Christians we are in great danger, perhaps more than unbelievers in some sense. DeYoung put it this way, temptations to vainglory may well be worse for the genuinely virtuous person. You know, for the person who's a reprobate and they, they're vainglorious, it's like, yeah, we get that. But what if you have this person who is doing what God has commanded? Vainglory becomes, I think, a greater temptation for that person than we might imagine. For those who make real progress in virtue in their Christian life, Vainglory becomes more of a possible downfall, not less. Why? Aquinas saw it this way. The better you become, the more recognition comes your way. And the more recognition that comes your way, the more susceptible you become to expecting the recognition, becoming excessively attached to the recognition, and wanting your goodness to be recognized, noticed, and affirmed. You may have started out as a humble believer, someone who wants to follow Christ. And as you grow in your faith, people begin to say, oh, look at so-and-so, brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so. And as this person begins to grow, suddenly they want to hear someone tell them how much they have grown. But imagine this. Imagine that the progress you have made in your Christian life, you keep to yourself. That is, your relationship with God is of such a nature that it is very private, very intimate. But you yourself know, I have grown closer to the Lord. I have become more and more like Christ. It is a hidden treasure, if you wish. Others may not have noticed it. But you have. And it becomes vainglory because you yourself, in a sense, take pride in it. 
You congratulate yourself on having done such a great job of not letting other people know. And yet at the same time, growing closer to the Lord Jesus. You say, I'm only in it for God's approval. Which at some point you may actually believe, but it's not true. And you have fallen victim to the vice of vainglory. One of the early desert fathers put it this way. It is difficult to escape the thought of vainglory, for what you sought to rid yourself of becomes a new source of vainglory. I'm going to try to get rid of this sin, this vice. And in having done so, you have fallen prey to the vice of vainglory. Another desert father wrote, even in solitude, when you're alone, vainglory does not cease to follow the person who, because of vanity, has fled the company of every mortal. The more someone seeks to avoid the whole world, the more hotly it pursues him. Vainglory attempts to puff up one person because he is especially patient in his toil and labor. Another because he is very prompt to obey. Still another because he exceeds his fellows in humility. Nor does this malady seek to hurt anyone except by way of his virtues, putting out dangerous stumbling blocks precisely where the rewards of life are gained. Vainglory wages its assault on us in the very pride of victory over other vices. So that you can write the book, Humility and How I Got It. And you have, in fact, fallen prey to vainglory. It is no wonder, then, that the men who first compiled this list referred to them as capital vices or deadly sins. And the point of calling them vices rather than sins is to note that they were talking about patterns of thought, of feeling, and of behavior. Not individual actions. Because I think individual actions, we feel like, you know, it's like whack the mole, you know, that we can sort of catch those things. But when you have something that is so pervasive, it is a pattern of thought and feeling, then we really have trouble. So where does vainglory come from? What are its roots? Following the example of Young, I will suggest to you two of them. The first seems so obvious. Um, we'll talk about it anyway. The second, much less so. The first root of vainglory, I would say, is pride. In the Christian tradition, the link between pride and vainglory is quite strong, so much so that oftentimes they are confused, or they are in fact fused together under the single title category of pride. Pride was seen as the root of all sin. And in the medieval period, um, as we come out of the medieval period into the Renaissance, we find paintings in which um, the, seven, the seven vices are painted as the branches on a tree, but the roots are pride. It is pride that gives birth to this tree, and then it sort of spreads out into the various vices. Pride is the root. Vainglory is the first branch to branch out from the trunk. By the way, the seven virtues were also painted the same way. Uh, humility is there at the bottom, and then from it we have all of the other virtues. But pride is the root. Vainglory, the first main branch. Are they the same? Is there a difference between pride and vainglory? I would argue that pride is about position and power, whereas vainglory is about attention and acknowledgement. Pride is about one's superiority or the superiority of one's goodness. Vainglory is about the desire for the display of one's goodness. Simply put, 
the prideful person desires to be greater than others, whether others recognize it or not. The vainglorious person wishes to attract other people's attention, their applause, whether in fact he or she is better than others or not. We want people to see us that way. The prideful person simply says, I'm going to be better than everyone else. I am better than anyone else. By the way, there is a way in which these two vices or the vices can, in fact, create this vicious cycle. The prideful person wants to be superior in goodness to others. Superior goodness naturally attracts attention and approval, being glory. Having more glory than others becomes an additional way in which the prideful person excels than others. This, in turn, attacks additional uh, notice and so on. And so it just sort of keeps building and building and building. On one hand, a person who is proud, purely prideful, if you wish, may not be vainglorious. He or she may feel that they are better than everyone else and they don't care what anybody else says. They don't need other people's approval. In fact, I would say the supremely proud person thinks it's beneath them to even care one whit what somebody else thinks about them. They're not in it for the glory. They're better than everyone else. But a person who is, in fact, inglorious wants people's attention. Can you have a desire to be vainglorious without being proud? In some sense, yes. Because a person who is vainglorious, they want people to see them. They're not necessarily concerned with being superior. They don't necessarily want to be better than other people. They simply want people to notice them. Being well-known or having the adulation of others is what matters. Stop and think a minute. Think back to your high school days. For some of us, that was a long time ago. Others, not so long. The popular people in high school, why were they popular? Um, Was it that they had done something great? They did something good? I mean, was it something they had done? Um, What is it about vainglory that we want other people's attention? That it's all that it's about. And in today's world with technology and the internet and other things, um, you can get a lot of people's attention without doing very much or not doing good things or quality things. I, I didn't put it in my notes, but I can't help but I'm reminded of what David Bentley Hart wrote once about a particular author. He said he is an example he is proof that you can be an illiterate and write a bestseller. Um, in other words, the book's not very good, but it was a bestseller. A vainglorious person isn't necessarily concerned with excellence. They simply want to be noticed. They want people to see them. For those whose sense of self-worth is grounded in the acknowledgement and approval of others, vainglory rather than pride, I think, is the moral temptation. So in a very weird way, a person who is vainglorious may not be proud at all. They simply want people's attention. So I said there are two roots to, to vainglory. The first is pride. I think that's very obvious. The second one, I think, is much less so. The second root is fear. 
Unlike the prideful glory worthy, the fearful are glory needy. The glory needy think they don't have much goodness at all. They don't want their inferiority to be shown or known. And so the concern with self-presentation is rooted in fearful, insecure sense of one's worth or lack of one's sense of worth rather than being inflated and having a prideful sense of who we are. The fearful want attention and approval too. Their, their problem is they don't think they have anything worthy of attention and therefore they have to do something in order to get people to notice them. One could argue that many of the industries in the modern world thrive on these things. Think of the industry of plastic surgery, which in fact does have a very strong and good component in which it seeks to repair the damage done to the human body. On the other hand, that's not, I think, where they make much of their money. It is those who do not appreciate the beauty of their own bodies. They are afflicted with self-loathing, a bad body image, feelings of painful inadequacy. And the industry says, here, we can make it better. And suddenly I can look like something different than who I am. Unlike vainglory of the prideful type, which is a show-off vice, vainglory of the fearful type is a deep or does cover up maneuvers for acutely felt absences. There's something missing in my life. And so there is a projection. Let me project who I want people to see me as. And we can be aided by any number of things. The advertising industry tells us so. Um, Cars, clothing, credentials. These things help us to craft an image that we can present to other people who will see us as being different than we really are. They won't see us as being imperfect or less impressive than we want to project. These allow us to gain recognition and approval because of the false fronts that we have put up. We are afraid, we are fearful of being rejected. And so vainglory of this sort, of this school, in many ways makes us dependent on the approval of others. We want other people to like us, to approve of us, to acknowledge us. This type of vainglory, by the way, has a very strong bent toward falsity, hiddenness, staging, and embellishment. Because we don't want people to see the real us. And so this type of vainglory seeks to put up different fronts so that what people will see isn't really me. They think it's me. But in fact, I have put up things because that's what I want people to see. Because I'm afraid that if they saw who I really am, they in fact would not love me. And I want to be loved. I think it's human nature. And so I put up something that I think that they will in fact love. As a result... I think in many ways, fearful vainglory is far more devastating and dangerous than prideful vainglory. Because here, we make it impossible for other people to know us, and we make it impossible for them to love us. How can they love us when they don't know us? What they know is this facade that we have put up. And we put it up 
I think, first of all, because it's possible in today's world, but secondly, because we are so fearful that they will not love the real me. I don't know about you, but having come to the end of this sermon, in the writing of it, and now in the speaking of it, this is less than encouraging. Um, in fact, it makes me cry out, in the words of Paul, what a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body of death. The vices point to our need, our profound and deep need for grace. Maybe that's why they've been neglected. Maybe that's why we don't like to talk about them. We imagine that we can overcome individual sins. We can be part of something that will help us overcome. I won't mention any sin because people say, well, I'm not guilty of that. But a particular sin, like, well, I'm going to work to overcome this sin. But vices like vainglory... I mean, just when you're doing better, then suddenly you're puffed up. You're like, okay, okay. I love what Paul says in the next verse. After crying out, what a wretched man I am. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Apart from the grace of God, we, in fact, will be imprisoned, enslaved by the vices. And in today's world, particularly the vice of vainglory. The Lord willing, in the weeks to come, we will look at this further and, by God's grace, find the remedy. What is it that you and I can do as individuals, but we as a congregation, as God's people? What can we do in today's world to overcome the vice of vainglory? Let's pray together. Our Father, we are made in your image. We are made to love. We want to be loved. And as a result, we look for an easy way to get that. And vainglory provides that, where we can put on a facade where people will like us, they will approve of us. Doing the hard work of actually achieving excellence or goodness oftentimes is set aside. It's just too hard. It's too difficult. And either because of pride or because of fear, Rather than seeking that which is truly good, we seek vainglory. I am reminded, I hope that we all are, of our great need of grace. Of how wretched we truly are. We've been so good at putting up a facade, we've deceived even ourselves. At the same time, I'm overwhelmed when I think of the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who was without sin. Not afflicted by vainglory. By your grace, may we become more and more like him. May we walk in his steps and follow his path. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Mindoro who have recently been assaulted by a typhoon, much damage has been done. We pray for the pastor there as he watches over his flock. Uh, keep them safe uh, and provide what they need. Now we've come to the end of 2015 and you have sustained us. 
by your grace. We ask that we, as we come into the new year, that you will continue to watch over us and sustain us. And by your grace, may we follow in your steps. Now as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.